Hey everyone, happy Filipino American History Month. Uh, welcome back to our show. This is Nani, your co-host of the Filipino American Woman Project podcast show. Before we get started today, we have another Pinay visionary to shout out for you guys who was shared to us by at Black Belt Soprano on Instagram. Jen, do you want to talk about our feature today? Yes, I do. And uh, I also have the uh, honor of possibly butchering this person's name. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <Yay. yeah. laughs> so shout out to Black Belt Soprano for uh, sharing with us uh, Jen Vilosis, I think is how you pronounce it. And if you want to help us uh, not butcher the name, I will have her information in uh, the show notes. So you can al always call in and let us know if I pronounce it wrong. Or if Jen is uh, listening to this, you can, you know, you can correct me. I'm totally fine with that. So the cool thing about Jen Vilosis is that she is the first transgender, the first Filipino-American transgender woman to open a bakery in Chicago. And so if you are in Chicago, her bakery is called Genevieve's Bakery. And I am just in awe of that. I think it's one thing to be a business owner. Uh, I think it takes a lot of guts to open up a business. Uh, but I also think it takes unique, like a unique set of guts, <laughs> you know, to come out as a transgender woman. And so shout out to you, Jen Vilosis, for, you know, one, being so open about your sexual orientation and your, you know, your choice of who you want to identify as, and also for having a bakery, Genevieve's Bakery. So if you want to learn more about her bakery, just check it out in the show notes, or you could also check her out online on Instagram. Her Instagram account is Genevieve Bakery, and the name is Genevieve Bakery Chicago, and it is a proudly trans, LGBT-owned, and she has a lot of followers. She has almost 4,000 followers on Instagram. So check her out and see the delicious cakes and cupcakes and what have you and all the delicious sweets uh, that you can think of at a bakery. Check it out on her website or on her Instagram account. And just say hi to her and, and, and wish her a happy Filipino American History Month and let her know that we consider her a Pinay visionary. So thank you, IG handle Black Belt Soprano for nominating her as a Panay visionary for our show today. With that said, let's go ahead and get started with the show. Welcome to the Filipino American Women Project, a podcast show that shares stories and life lessons told by individuals living or have lived in America that are of Filipino descent and identify as female. I'm your host, Jen Amos, a fellow Filipino-American woman, and I'm excited for you to join us. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Jen Amos here with the Filipino-American Woman Project podcast show. And as always, I have my wonderful co-host with me, Nani Dominguez. Nani, welcome back to the show. Hello. Welcome back, everyone. 
Yes, and we are excited. We have another special episode for the Filipino American History Month. We have with us today Pinay activist and scholar Stacy Ann. So Stacy Ann is currently a PhD student working on feminist scholarship focusing on the lives of Filipino women in the USA during the Great Depression. Crazy. I don't even I would have never even considered that like at all because I don't really study history, but anyway, mm-hmm. that's just me. With that said, Stacy, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, very cool. We're, we're super happy to have you. I want to give our listeners a little background on Stacy. We had communicated over two years ago. <laughs> and Stacy, why don't you share a little bit about how you heard about the project and why you initially reached out? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So the first time I was introduced to Tifa, I was actually just trying to find internships for my, I think it was my second year of graduate school at UC Davis. And I really wanted to engage with grassroots and community organizations that really focused on what does it mean to be Filipina American. And I happened to find through a Facebook search, Jen, your organization. And I thought, well, I have to be a part of this in any way, whatever it is. And so that's, that's how I met you and TFAO. Yes. The cool thing is that one of your pieces or one of your assignments for one of your classes at the time, the feminist theory American studies class, I believe you had decided to write a piece about us, which I really appreciated, by the way. I want to thank you for that. Oh yeah, no worries. It was a it was an honor to do it because no one really talks about Filipina feminism and how we express our work for the community and for ourselves and how we create communities and circles for healing, specifically for the experiences of women of color. And so I just thought it was something I can help contribute to. Yeah, there was a line in there that I want to read. I actually like want to read your entire essay, but we don't have time for that. Or maybe we will. <laughs> Who knows? But there was a line in there that uh, stood out to me as I was kind of reading through it again. And it says, Filipina Americans, despite the census data confirming their labor, such as nurses, students, farmhands, domestic workers, wives and mothers, and their presence during the 1920s and their contributions to both their Filipino ethnic enclaves in the broader Asian American community, especially are without a history for current generations of Filipino Americans to fall back on or reference. And so my takeaway from that is that kind of just what you said, there's really not a lot of historical documentation of mm-hmm. us. And so I think it's super awesome right now as, as a PhD student, you are focusing on the lives of Filipino women in the USA during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, I stumbled on that when I was getting my master's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I noticed at one of the archives I was interning at that there was a file called Filipinos on the Central Coast, but the file actually had a jumble of Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, Japanese Americans, and someone had just lumped all of these Asian groups together. Mm. And there was one photograph, because I had to help organize it, there was one photograph of a Filipino woman standing outside a Filipino market in 1932. And I thought, you know, that's interesting because for every 20 Filipino farmhands, there's maybe only one or no Filipinas. And I thought, well, what is she doing there? And how mm. can I really, how can I relate to this photograph? Cause it's basically a Filipino woman with her back turned to the camera. And I did more digging and that's how I fell in love and passionate with this idea of trying to restore Filipina the Filipina presence in America. And so that was basically where my interest and creative interest went to. Going into my PhD program too, I wanted to collect 
basically a story that can help us begin how we understand what it means to be Filipina and Filipino American was basically through that photograph. Wow. You're going to have to share that photo with us. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's just it's just a woman with her back turned and she's just facing the market. I think it's so fascinating that you're pursuing this. Like, I feel like you're the first person I know that is trying to bring light to Filipina history in America. Because another thing you had in your essay that you wrote for us, it said much of the historical literature on Filipino and Filipino Americans flourished during the 1990s, but much of it was only for the Filipino male experience. So I just, I just want to commend you for what you're doing. I, I can't say that enough. And yeah, I, that's it. I really can't say enough other than that. <laughs> So much, you know, because um, the field of academia is just so, unfortunately, there's moments where it's very conservative and they ask you the question as you're doing your rigorous training, like, well, why Filipino American women? What is so unique and special? Because they want you to create this very, they say sexy, which is, I think is very gendered, but this new sexy argument when it comes to Asian American history, just American history in general. And that always struck a chord with me, even to this day be asked why study yourself and that's I've had that moment in academic circles and so I think those kind of jabs especially in the like racially charged and gendered moment we're living in now it really pushes me to write this history of Filipinas in America and Filipino Americans and their daughters from 1900 to 1965 because when we think of Asian American and Asian immigrants in the U.S it's very difficult for mainstream America to conceptualize that there were Asian families prior to the brain drain in 1965 Immigration Act. Whoa. Can you talk a little bit about the brain drain? (laughs) I've never heard of that. Oh, no. I mean, they lumped that in with the 1965 Immigration Act. So LBJ, they, President LBJ decided in the 60s, well, he said that it's unconstitutional for LBJ in Congress, it's unconstitutional to have quota restrictions on immigration especially when it comes to these quotas who have, which have been influenced by racial biases. Like if we look at the history of immigration policy, it was meant to restrict Asian immigration, especially because they thought that they were bringing in unskilled laborers and they were going to suck the American economy dry and take American jobs and things like that. And so race, the conceptualization of race had a lot to do with these immigration quotas. But in 1965, they, they argued that, no, it's unconstitutional because of its racist implications. But at the same time, it's the Cold War. So the U.S., if they're going to allow immigrants to come in, they want a specific type of immigrant. These people were usually, not only they had family members in the U.S., so it's family reunification, but they want an immigrant who can provide skilled, specific labor. Because the U.S., under this mask of democracy, they're thinking, oh, well, we need skilled laborers because it's too expensive to actually grow our own, put them to school. It's cheaper to actually extract and import them to the U.S. And so this is where we see another influx of Filipino engineers, doctors, nurses. A lot of the nurses come in through programs and the Immigration Act of 1965. So when we think of Filipino Americans, you know, usually it's the first generation of nurses, doctors, engineers, and teachers after 1965 when actually there are Filipinos and Filipina Americans who have been creating communities prior to that, as early as like 1908 with the pensionados who came over to do schooling in the U.S. Wow. 
I'm curious with, with your work right now in your PhD program, how challenging is it or easy? I don't know. Like, what is it like having kind of like creating this history for Filipino women today? I mean, it is crazy, hectic, but also fulfilling. The crazy part is where, you know, you are met with challenges as to why this research is important. That's one thing. The second part of why it's crazy is because the resources are so lacking. Most of the resources I found, they're by chance. I happen to be at an exhibit that I'm hosting or presenting. I happen to bump into Filipino Americans whose families have been here since the 30s. So I find oral histories that way, like blessings in disguise when I do these exhibits or presentations. But I think the other part that's fulfilling besides recording these women's narratives is that when I actually get the chance to teach at the Asian American history, uh, Asian American studies department as a TA or as a part-time or a lecturer, it's when you see the faces in the audience of undergraduates who are ages 18 to 21. And this is their first time recognizing or hearing that there are communities that look like them and Mm -hmm. face the same you know, turmoil struggles as they do as part of immigrant families. So I think that's probably the best part of doing all this research that makes it the most fulfilling. One thing I feel like we've been doing on this show mm-hmm. is a big scavenger hunt of trying to collect these stories uh, from people. And it sounds like you're in a way doing the same thing. And like you mentioned, you've been able to find blessings in disguise, just kind of being Mm -hmm. out and about and in the work that you're doing. So I think that's really awesome. I want to go ahead and turn it over to Nani now and see if Nani, if you had any questions or comments. Yeah, I do. I just, I mean, my questions are pretty vague, so I'll let you kind of run with it in whatever Mm -hmm. direction you see necessary, Stacey, but I wanted to have you help us kind of just focus on Filipino American history, specifically from the woman's standpoint. So our last special episode for Filipino American History Month, we talked a little bit about people like Carlos Bulasan, Jose Rizal, Mm -hmm. and different kind of male figures in history, but we kind of want to get a better idea of while they were busy writing their novels and leading revolutions and things, what have the women been doing? What have the women been up to? And kind of how our role in society has shifted and expanded since we've been forced into these molds by colonization and then by various like survival tactics in having to migrate to various different places and how those historical events have forced the masses of our diaspora into primarily caregiving roles. And then like how you talk about with then needing skilled labor requirements, then having an influx of of like engineers and nurses and things. So, and, and also in pre-colonial times, like you've mentioned before, there's quite a lack of literature, but from what I have found, it seems like women were really known to be healers and shamans in pre-colonial times and how that has kind of played a part in paving our path. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, I know it's a lot of information. It's, it's a long history of Filipinas and their impact on family formation and how that translated through the colonial period and immigration and the larger Filipina diaspora that has its roots everywhere today. But I mean, if we want to talk about Filipinas prior to the colonial period, you're right. Some of the 
primary resources are from travelers. And one of them is, I think if you've ever heard of her, it's Urduha. So she's from the Philippine archipelago. And she basically was a princess or queen in her own right. And she was also a military strategist. So she commanded armies. And she basically would tell men who wanted to marry her in order to lay claim to her kingdom that the only way she would ever marry them or partner with them is if they could actually defeat her in a duel because she was skilled in combat. And I, I, to this day, I don't think she actually was tied down by any man. She was able to lead her kingdom and I think also travel an island hop throughout Southeast Asia. Some very small sources. And you're right, they could be witch doctors or shamans, uh, priestesses. And Filipinas could act before the Spanish and Portuguese came. They could actually divorce amicably if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maintain their family's property. Like the father could give property to his daughter. And no one would question it. But of course, when the Spanish and Portuguese come and they take Manila, that entire system gets flipped on its head and we see women Filipinas having to convert to Catholicism and also adhere to what does family formation look like to Spanish Catholics and that system and the Spaniards had a really hard time actually trying to subdue Filipinas and their families and so they actually converted some of their traditions and rituals to match Catholic meanings and so when we think of like the cotillion or the debut, you know, a woman, Filipina woman's coming of age, right? it has to do a lot with Filipina traditions when it comes to what does it mean to be a Filipina during the pre-colonial period and coming of age and the entire ceremony. Because that was the only way that the Spanish could, in a way, successfully convert Filipinas to be part of the colonial system. But I mean, if we go beyond that, of course, there's Filipinas who are also fighting for in- independence and sovereignty. Like we have the famous Gabriela Silang. Uh, mm-hmm. She was basically saying that the, this part of northern Luzon for Elecanos, this should be for the Philippine people. And so she actually led guerrilla groups with her husband. And even after her husband was assassinated by those who were loyal to the Spanish Empire, she still continued to fight, and even though when she was driven into the mountains, and they eventually capture her, but they were the Spanish who were there in the Philippines, and the Filipinos who were loyal to the Spanish Empire. They were so afraid of her because they thought she's so powerful and influential, both as a military strategist and a revolutionary, that she could actually turn the Spanish system in on its head and rally more people to the cause. So they were so afraid of her, they had to capture her and then execute her. So we have these moments of Filipinas, you know, being resilient and contributing to their community, but where is it, right? And the other thing I know, yeah, the other thing I know in my research is those who write history, they pick and choose who they want because they fit this perfect narrative of what a Filipina should be. And it's Mm. informed by all these silly colonial ideologies as to what gender and femininity is and what's a good Catholic woman in the body of a Filipina. So again, there's so many other histories and individuals we're missing because of all these different types of tropes Filipinas have been shoved into. But even if we look at the Philippine Revolution, after Jose Rizal is executed, we look at Bonifacio and all these generals who are coming together to you know, rally this cry for true Philippine sovereignty. The women who participate in that, it was very class conscious, but they were usually the wives, aunts, or daughters of these male Philippine revolutionaries. But basically, Bonifacio's wife, she starts a club, and she's the one who actually maintains this community and this paper trail of what the Philippine revolution is actually going to be. 
to the point where she also is seen as a threat to people who want to disrupt that enterprise. So she experiences a lot of violence too along the way, but her story is still kind of set aside in comparison to her husband and all the men like Aguinaldo who are part of that process. So it's, it's those moments where it's, they're pushed aside and it's really sad to see that because again, you can't have community without the other half. And what I've noticed in research for Philippine American history, we hear about the Manong generation. So the farm laborers, the migrant farm laborers who also went to work in the canneries and they followed crops all the way through Montana and Idaho. When they came back to California, those communities that were settled, they weren't necessarily all bachelor Filipino-American or Little Manila towns. The reason why those towns could be settled is because even if Filipino-Americans or Filipinas made a small population in comparison to the men, you have the Filipino Women's Club, you have these women's auxiliary clubs that actually collected and created programs so that community could find its roots. So this idea of home, family, despite this harsh, harsh migration patterns and the migrant labor history, it, they kind of owe their stability to these women who organize and help create these communities for them to come back to. And we see it. Like if you look at the Filipino Women's Club in Salinas, which has been around since 1930, that's crazy. Mm. Again, for every 20 Filipino mm. farmers in America, there's like one Filipina. But there was enough of a community in Salinas of Filipino women and Filipino American women since 1930. They're celebrating their 90th anniversary next year. Just thinking about what they could do with so little in such a racially charged and violent period, it says a lot if we look at pre-colonial up until present day with Philippine Americans and clubs like this, it really demonstrates just how significant Filipino women are to community and family formation and just this idea of what it means to be a cultural matriarch and why that's so important for generations thereafter. Yeah. I recently just joined Gabriella the mass um, organization, Gabriella, mm-hmm. which is named after who one of the people that you just referenced, Gabriella Salong. And it's interesting to me because while there's a lack of resources, you know, there's not a lot of stories that we can find, but you were able to, Gabriella is basically the only one that I've known about until just now when, mm-hmm. when you were just talking I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on why someone like her is not recognized widely as a historical hero or figure, because this is all super new to me still. So as Mm -hmm. I'm learning about it, I'm going and talking to people outside of those groups about it. And I'm I'm not getting the response that I have myself, which is confusing and also frustrating. So I'm just a little, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on why more people don't know who who Gabriela Silong was? Well, I think it's it's a really complex matter, right? When we think of the Philippines and Filipino culture and how it was basically outlined to fit a patriarchal mold, not only patriarchal, but a very Catholic and conservative mode. So the ideal woman under all those circumstances of oppression and and that type of system, it doesn't allow for a rebel, female rebel fighter for a female guerrilla or guerrillera, right? And so it's those moments of trying to maintain a philosophy about who counts as a hero. Those are some of the factors that are going to push out these women from being part of the greater narrative of Filipina women's history. Uh, from what I've noticed in my in my research, 
So yeah, Catholic ideals as to what a good woman is. It's a mother. You look at Gabriella, was she a mother? I mean, you could argue in our 21st century expectations of womanhood. Yeah, she was an activist and a fighter and she seems like a proto-feminist. But for the that time period and up until the 1960s, Gabriella looks like a revolutionary that should be kept under wraps because she's not fitting this perfect mold of Filipino womanhood. Right. That's just so crazy to me that even when I'm talking to people that we start with the whole lack of representation thing and it's important to share our stories Mm -hmm. and then tell them about this historical figure that I just learned about and the sentiment is just not there. And I'm kind of like, well, okay, we're here complaining that our story, that we're not seen, that we don't feel seen or heard, but here's someone that we can take and use as an example. It may not be, there may not be a lot of those opportunities, Mm -hmm. but here's one. And why aren't we not clinging to it? But it just seems like, like what you just said, maybe because of, for whatever reasons, people are just not able to grasp that kind of depth in her story. So, yeah. The fact that she's Elcano, so she's, she's a brown Filipina, Mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, that Spanish caste system of color, the variations of what what whiteness can provide a Filipino, so how mestiza you are, that's actually going to also add as to whose story should be preserved or who has priority. In the Philippines, Gabriela Silong is one of the very few women who are highlighted in Filipina history. But again, there are many other women who should be noticed. It's just that they're histories are lacking for these various social and economic and religious factors. All right, Jenny was here jumping into the middle of our show, as I always do, to remind you why this show is possible. So, you know, at the end of every episode, I tend to say, if you didn't catch our guest contact info, don't worry, we'll have those in the show notes. Check them out. I worked so hard on them. You're welcome. Well, It's been brought to my attention that our show notes are not as easy to find as I thought, which is why starting summer 2020, the Filipino American Woman Project is proud to be partnering with Captivate, the world's only growth-oriented podcast host. Captivate is created for independent podcasters, designed from day one to help you to focus on audience growth and the expansion of your audio influence. One way that Captivate makes our lives easier as independent podcasters is by taking the guesswork out of making a website for your show. That's right, a website for your show. So listeners, starting summer 2020, finding our show notes will be so much easier. All thanks to Captivate. You're welcome, as always. If you're about to start podcasting or are getting burnt out from all the extra work of producing one, like building a website, consider a seven-day free trial. That's right, free with Captivate by visiting thephilamwoman.com. That's the Philam, short for Filipino-American, woman.com. Or, you know, check out our show notes in the meantime, which is in the details section of each episode. Once again, you can visit thephilamwoman.com or visit the details section of this episode. Right, and part of the decolonization process, I think, for our community as a whole is kind of redefining those metrics of what we measure or how we're judging or measuring other people's success. Sorry. So let me see if I can maybe tie that into the next question that I had for you, which is another just vague open-ended question 
about how has how have we gotten here? Like how have we gotten to a place where we're so marginalized we can't even recognize one of our own, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a very complex question. In terms of being or finding a place as Filipino American women and being able to profess who we are and what we do. Is that what you mean? Yes. And more specifically, how can we kind of loosen the grip that the man or whatever <laughs> has has historically had on us and kind of reclaim our narrative as we talk about people like Gabriella being mm-hmm. subdued in history books or wherever people get history lessons because of their idea of what a woman should be marketed as. How can we kind of take back that power and start to redefine that? Right. Well, okay. Yeah. As a scholar activist, there are avenues that we can take on that, of course, they're going to be extremely difficult, but some of the ways that I do it is I work with grassroots organizations like the Belosan Center of Philippinex Studies at UC Davis, like the first of its kind. And my main role there is to recover Filipino American history, especially from the women's perspective. I think it is extremely crucial to uncover these histories and to teach them for broad audiences, right? That's what sometimes academia gets flack for because they produce knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Whereas grassroots communities and organizations, when we work with academics, we can actually provide these histories and these narratives to the broader audience so that we can instill change. And I think history in that way is very important in order for us to create that stepping stone as to how we break out of these categories and ways that marginalize us and minoritize us because it always helps to begin the healing process, understanding and seeing another face or hearing another story that's similar to ours, who went through the same type of struggles of being a Filipina or Filipino American. Just having another mirror to look at and to review can help us figure out why it is that we feel this way and and find a sense of community. So I think history has that. Doing history can actually provide that first step towards trying to break these molds because it forces us to recognize ourselves and those who came before us and create those bridges and then extend those bridges to other communities and other brown girls who are experiencing the same type of atrocities or the same types of marginalization. So for me, that's why history is so significant. I think that's one way we can actually get out of these systems of oppression and better understand ourselves. The other way that we can tackle sexism piled on with racism or the class conscious or trying to tackle the mall minority myth, all those types of things. Another way we can try to get over those humps and hurdles is by reaching out to our communities, right? Getting youths actively engaged with what it means to be different, acknowledging difference and, and teaching them how to empathize. And unfortunately, we don't really have the tool to do that. But right now in California, we are trying to get ethnic studies from the kindergarten through 12th grade level, like approved of, so that we can actually have these histories of color, right? Not only of color, but also creed, tribe, religion, 
gender, sexuality, all of that is compiled into this new ethnic studies curriculum. And I think it's I think that's another aspect, right, that branches off of history and history, historical research so that we can teach the next generation what it means to understand and accept what it means to be different. Like, what does difference actually look like and how does difference add to diversity? Right. Because I think if you build yes. that, if you build those tools at such a young age, I mean, kindergarten, you know, teaching ethnic studies at kindergarten, you had to have a college degree to even have the opportunity to sign up for an ethnic studies course. If we start that young, I think that will help the next generation of the generations thereafter to actually redefine these molds of what it means to be a woman of color, for instance. But of course, as an activist scholar, I always think of the ground up and how education is actually going to spark change because we take it for granted sometimes, even in a public education system. I, I worked in public education and volunteered for a long time. It was always disheartening and sad to see kids of color grow up, minorities grow up, and they don't have access to understanding why it is that they're being treated this way or why it is the world operates this way based on these identities that are just all social constructs. So I really think starting from the ground up, history, providing that to the public, and then also providing K through 12 ethnic studies. I mean, that is the way to go if we want to heal and challenge what it means to be a minority. Love it. I was just listening to everything both have been discussing. And just like what you said, Stacey, I feel like my greatest takeaway from what you said so far is that learning our history is a form of empowerment and mm -hmm. healing. And I actually never looked at it that way. And kind of like what you said, like how now they're, they're trying to offer ethnic studies at, at younger grades, like in kindergarten and stuff, which is super awesome. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn about my history was in college. Mm -hmm. And even then I had to actively seek out the course to sign up for. And when I was in the courses, I just felt so disconnected to the history and the facts and the figures that I just, it just didn't resonate with me. Even knowing in my own family, for example, like how my grandpa was a veteran in World War II and his brother, we lost his brother in the Bataan March. Like I remember in college, even knowing all that and doing and marching for the justice for Filipino American veterans, like even then I, st I still felt disconnected. But to hear it through you and the way that you're telling our story, it makes me want to learn our history now, like through the way that you're describing it. I also think it's kind of fascinating because I feel like the number one thing that we tend to get on the show, the number one like commonality that we all have is not feeling enough. It's just kind of mm -hmm. like not feeling enough and struggling with the imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with colonization because mm -hmm. all the stories that you're sharing with me of like Filipinas in the past, it's like, wow, like had I known those stories, I, I don't think I would have struggled the way that I did today as a Filipina American woman. And mm -hmm. so for any of our listeners that's listening to the show and you have felt disconnected with history, with our own history, I think, I, I hope that this inspired you to study Filipina women in the past before colonial times, because that's, that's the truth. That's who we really were before all the colonization happened. And it's just very affirming to me. And it, it's another reason like why I like to, you know, do this project and why I like to bring other women on. Cause I think we all are together figuring out the lie <laughs> of yeah. not feeling good enough and the, and, and struggling with the imposter syndrome. I think if we mm -hmm. all could be like, gosh, like that is so wrong. That is such a lie. We can all just heal and be empowered together and, and rewrite our narratives and uh, actually seek out this history and document it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been a crazy whirlwind of doing all this research in the last, oh my God. So I met you two years ago. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now I'm in my fourth year of my PhD program. But oh my God, no, Jen, I really wanted to say thank you when you connected me to the Filipino American National Historical Society of San Diego. One of the Lola's actually, again, a blessing in disguise, right? Connecting mm-hmm. with other people who have the same passion about this. Uh, Lola reached out to me, Miss Emma Butin, and her father was a Manong, and he came here during the 20s to farm in Santa Rosa. He experienced racism. He's like, forget this. I'm going back to Philippines. And then they survived World War II, and then she comes over during the brain drain as a nurse. And wow. she, she's also part of a military legacy. So again, she's part of the archives at the Belosan Center, the first grassroots organization by graduate students and a Filipina, Dr. Rodriguez at Asian American Studies Department in UC Davis. Like now we can actually house her family's story. And that's such a great archive that I'm very proud of. And I would not have been able to create that without you, Jen. So I really, because oh. really, you you know, you did the middle ground part. You created that bridge for me to the San Diego film community. So it's moments like this where I really think that the, having a, a secure Filipino American circle and feeling comfortable, having a comfortable space with women like me who understand what it is that I'm doing. Like, I really appreciate that. So happy Philippine X American History Month, you guys. <laughs> Other pe- like-minded people, I really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure. I, I'm i so grateful to hear that. I mean, I, I'm a fairly like confident woman, but even I sometimes question like, what am I doing? Like, is this working? And it's just great to even be a bridge uh, or a connector for some people. And so I'm just really happy to hear that. I, I didn't know that turned out the way that it did. And it just, it just brings me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, thank you so much. She was, she was great to interview. Oh, very cool. Awesome. I love it. So I, I, I have like a couple of other questions, you know, not in any like particular order, but let me see here. I was, I was taking some notes. In your research, and and I'm just curious, maybe for people who want to get started in learning about Filipina uh, history in in America, or or even just learning about Filipino stories in general, have you come across any books or resources by like Filipina authors that you would recommend? I recently wrote one. It's about promote it. <laughs> I'm just saying, because um, I, I work with other organizations, Pacific Atrocities Education, which is in the heart of San Francisco, Chinatown, they talk about, or they, they do outreach uh, with uh, college youth about the uh, experiences of Asian immigrants and Asian Americans during World War II and the atrocities committed. And I actually have a book with them about the Filipina guerrillas and spies who participated in World War II and helped to liberate the Philippines. So that is one resource and all the proceeds go to go back to that grassroots organization, by the way. So that book is basically about Filipinas contribution and also tracking their immigration patterns and histories. So a lot of the women in that book as well, how did they face the the caste system? You know, if they were brown girls versus being mestiza or being mixed, how did their narrative survive and how was it affected by sex and gender discrimination, even when they came to the U.S., which basically suppressed their ability to talk about their roles as veterans during World War II. So there's that uh, resource. That's uh, Pinay Grilleras. And then also all the people I work with at the Belosan Center, they're all graduate students. And Dr. Rodriguez as well, she is the head of Asian American Studies Department. But they're also working on books. And I think they've also released some articles and books about the larger Filipinx diaspora. Um, and so that goes from anywhere between like redefining or understanding Filipino or Filipinx gender, sexuality, human trafficking, um, health coalitions, and 
doing policy advocacy at the Capitol. So that's a good resource, like the Belosan Center website. You guys can find that online. And then for other, there's a community of Filipino-American scholars, right? But again, because we're a minority, it's so hard sometimes to locate us. Mm. So that's what's so great about the Belosan Center, if you look us up, is that we actually have conference. We, we had our first conference last year where we connected with all these different Filipinx and Filipino-American scholars. And they came over to UC Davis and they presented their work. And, and I'm, I'm not kidding. They have articles as on topics like boba, <laughs> on oh. boba, right? About how boba as a center for youth, Asian American youth, intergenerational experiences, how boba was a way to connect to wow. being Asian. Hmm. No, yeah, it, it, was, it was amazing. I was sitting at this conference and I was like, oh my God, this is fun. This is liberating. And this is also very informative. So again, Below Sun Center website, that's a good location to find resources on the Philippinex experience. And then when it comes to like actually looking at or locating resources on Filipina American history or Filipina history, that's even harder. Mm. That's even harder, which is why I'm trying to create all these archives with our um, archivist, uh, Jason Sarmiento, at the Below Sun Center, just specifically dedicated to locating Filipinas in America, Filipino-Americans, from 1900 to present day. So I'm trying to do that so that future researchers, scholars, or even undergraduates, whomever, it's available to the public. I'm working on that right now. So we can get, you know, so that when you, you click on it, you can actually see the photographs that these families donated. Um, so there's that resource, digital archives. And then again, Filipino, Filipina American history. You have some works by some Berkeley scholars. I think one of them is Empire of Care. And some of them are memoirs of Filipina Americans who were born in the 1930s in the U.S. But you really actually have to get grounded in Filipino American history in order to just locate them. Some of them, there's only like one copy of a woman's memoir. That has, oh my God, that has been so difficult to just locate because there's only one copy. And so right now I'm actually looking at a history of feminism in the Philippines from 1900 to 1955. And there's only so many copies of this book and I happen to get my hands on one. And so right now I'm trying to write a summary and discussion, add that to my dissertation, but it's just wild what you find, but you really have to just put your working boots on and really just dig deep for these sources for which again demonstrates showcases that Filipino American history is almost non-existent but yeah again if you want resources you know the the best place to do that is in archives but who's going to go through all that ridiculous schooling yeah you just have access to these to these tools to these histories which is very frustrating with academia sometimes right because we take for granted what college is what education is like you need these tools in order just to find a narrative that has been lost to history. And I, sometimes I think, well, I only have so much time in the day. But again, the Below Sound Center is really working to create these resources to find and locate Filipino American history. So I really just recommend going there as a starting as a starting place or even just contact, contacting the Below Sound Center because we're networking with other Filipino American scholars across the country and even in Hawaii and other grassroots organizations as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's really, really good to know, especially for people that are listening to this for the first time and really don't know where to begin. They can check out the Bulasan Center.
You did just remind me of a a line in your essay that I also had had saved that said something about how the Asian American experience is watered down with long by longstanding American prejudices. I'm not sure if there's anything else to really expand on there, but what you were just talking about kind of reminded me of that statement that I thought might be worth mentioning on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Asian American history. I mean, you see Asian American literature like flourish during the the 80s and 90s and during the Asian American power movement during the 60s and 70s. But then because of American mainstream American society, how they interpret for a long time what Asian is, our histories kind of get lumped and they create this one category of Asian what does it mean to be Asian American? And of course, Filipinos will get will get lost in there. Our histories will get lost in there. That's the one thing when you find identity and you create the term Asian American, right? What are the repercussions of that? Of course, onlookers who have the privilege of being the accepted notion of what it is to be an American citizen, sometimes they look at that and they kind of gawk at it and they prescribe all their stereotypes to what Asian is. And so that also adds to this dilution of Asian American history and all its various groups that make up Asian American history. Like here's just one example that was ridiculous. I personally thought it was it was crazy, but I just had the Philippinex American History booth at uh, Davis and Central Park. It was International Cultural Festival Day. And these these passerbyers who are coming by, they came in and they're like, oh, Filipino is Asian or what is what is the Philippines? Isn't that just a resort? Island. What? These kind of, <laughs> well, I know, right? But then again, the academic in me, the grassroots in me was, you know, upset, of course. But then the academic in me thought, like, can you expect, like, every regular right. American to perceive the Filipino in any other way when the Philippines is seen as a developing nation, right? And those mail order brides, all these stereotypes yeah. they have about. Philippines and the Filipino women, especially because I'm a Filipino woman standing there at this booth. They had all these expectations and judgments already. But yeah. hearing those kind of comments, you know, it, it basically adds to the discussion as to why Filipino American history in the larger scheme of Asian American history can sometimes seem non-existent. It's, it's those moments, social interactions, where I realized ah, this is even more so the reason adding to it, why we need to keep doing this type of scholarship. It's to it's right. to change right. the minds of those stereotypes, right? And and even thinking about how that translates into your identity, the way that you define yourself or identify with yourself. Growing up, filling out applications, I was always confused how I was supposed to identify when it asked me what your race is. And right. for the first portion of my life, I was under the impression that. I was supposed to identify myself as a Pacific Islander. And then mm-hmm. someone was like, and I was maybe 15 or 16, someone was like, no, you're Asian. So then I started putting Asian, but I still, every time I'm faced with that question, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> and then it also makes me think about if this is a difficult question for me to answer for myself, what about all the other races and ethnicities that are not listed that I that I don't even know about? How, where, what box do they check? And it, I don't know, I mean, I can spiral on that and go on and on forever, but it it translates in so many ways. There's so many, like you said, repercussions of creating that category, I guess. 
Yeah, no, it's so it's so important to mark those boxes. Just, I mean, for the sake of having census representation in our districts. Is, right, is that- and then like, how accurate is that? If we don't, if we ourselves don't even know how we're supposed to be identifying right. on these papers. Right. So that's the that's two sides of the same coin of finding representation, right, and finding an identity. It's we're trying to create change by saying that we're here and we're present, but at the same time, we are labeled in these categories that we might not necessarily understand, which really right. adds to the reason as to why we st- we need ethnic studies, right? So we can find some sense of security as to who we are and we learn the history about us and those who came before us to who created that identity. They're just that term for ourselves. So the census is a huge issue right now in terms of redistricting, mm-hmm. especially for Filipino Americans in the Bay Area, because we, yeah, we found that we have we have a scholar R.J. in the Blossom Center who's looking at uh, census in order to discuss the health concerns of the larger Filipino American and Filipino immigrant communities in California. But we've noticed that you know a lot of Filipinos they don't participate in the census, right? Because mm-hmm. either they don't have access to it or because they worry about if they participate in it, how they will be seen because some of them are undocumented, some of them are citizens or some of them are on visas. So there's all these insecurities that come with these, these census, the census data. But again, it's also very important to participate in them so that we can say and claim a space that we're here and we can create change with what our district needs. So yeah, I totally understand, you know, this idea of checking off a box and what are the implications of it? Yeah. Thank you for expanding on that. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this something a lot along the lines with Angelica in our previous episode, and she focuses on Philippine X literacy. I, one thing I feel about like this generation or this time and space right now is that we have the opportunity to document our stories and, and rewrite our narratives. And I think that's why we've been getting so much feedback, like positive feedback with our show, mm-hmm. because people want it now and and people yeah, people want it now. They're looking for answers and they want to feel a sense of security in their own identity. And so I think overall, like just the whole like being seen more, it's like we mm-hmm. all want it. And and I feel like there's so many people that are actively uh, in the forefront, making sure that we're seen. And I feel like you're one of those people, Stacey. And okay. I, yeah, I just really, I, I'm just in awe of the work that you're doing. And I definitely don't want this to be like the last conversation that we have <laughs> on the show oh, with you. No, 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 really. I, I really, really love entering these spaces with other like-minded women. Like even my mentor, Dr. Rodriguez, like she supports what I do, right? And she helped create a space for me to do that at UC Davis when I was feeling at my lowest because people academics kept telling me like what's so important about filipino american women in history women's history like there's nothing really there that hasn't been said already it's these types of circles that affirm what it is and why it is that i do what i do so again thank you for having me yeah absolutely i do have i have like two more questions for you yeah so right now you are focusing on the lives of Filipino women in the USA during the Great Depression for your PhD program. And I'm curious why you chose that time period. I am a nerd for old Hollywood cinema. My grandma, my Lola, was born in the 30s. And I was raised partially by her because my mom and dad, they're nurses. Now they're retired nurses, but they're working like crazy, ridiculous shifts all the time. So it was my, my grandma who actually taught me Filipino culture. Filipino language. 
So I felt an attachment to that time period Mm. because that's the generation she grew up with. And so I always thought that, well, I know now that there were Filipino Americans during this time period. How can I demonstrate their activism and their contributions to American society? So the main reason, one of the main reasons is because it's just a, it's an ode. My research is an ode to my grandma. So Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Yeah, and I feel like it's kind of obvious that you probably wouldn't be pursuing this if you were if you weren't a Filipina. And and so mm-hmm. I'm just curious in this whole experience so far and I know your program has been crazy rigorous and mm-hmm. you've just been studying nonstop and working nonstop. What have you learned about yourself in this journey so far as as an activist and scholar? Oh my goodness, so much that I wasn't expecting to. Number one was, I mean, I guess, finding these narratives about Filipino-American women. Like, why is there this conflict between Filipino ideals and philosophies I was raised with, and then Catholic ones as well? And how do they not mesh with the education and training I got at the public school level and just being immersed in American society? Like, where is that conflict coming from? And why, when you add gender on top of that, why does it bother me so much? So those are some of the questions I, I had going in to doing this type of research. And then they were answered for me. They were answered for me in the form of these women's narratives. Like there's this one, one woman who was writing poetry in the Bay Area and Central Coast during the 1930s. She was writing this, po- Helen Rilliera, she, she's uh, like one and a half generation Filipino-American. And she was writing about why is it that my parents have such strict guidelines as what it means to be a Filipina? Why can't they see me as Filipino-American? Why is it that the men in my family and the men in my Filipino-American community, why are they so judgmental from how I dress to how I enjoy literature? Why do they always tell me I need to understand what it means to be a good Filipina woman? Like, what does that mean? So she had all these questions in like 1934. And I was reading it as I was going through these these stacks of old Filipino-American newspapers from the Depression era. And I thought, oh my God, her experiences, even in even though she only, you can only find maybe like five poems of her and letters from her published in the Filipino-American newspaper, the Philippines Mail. Like, why is this resonating so much with me? And so just doing, again, this type of research has been very therapeutic. Finding a face like mine in the Depression era from another Filipino American, it like it tells me so much as to how much more we have to keep going with this. That's beautiful. And kind of what I had mentioned too throughout our conversation, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm learning the most about myself through everyone else's stories. Mm-hmm. I just I feel more connected with all of you and with our history. And I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I'm planning on making a, a separate episode about this, but I'll just share it anyway. <laughs> So last night, last night I had a craving. This is like kind of off topic, but not really. I had a craving for McDonald's like at midnight. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was hungry. I was like, I got to go out and and I'm just, I got to eat something. I've had a, like, I've had a stressful couple of days, but anyway, yeah. driving at night and I go to, I go to the drive-thru at McDonald's and I was waiting at the, the second window when they give you your food. 
And the lady is Filipina <laughs> and, oh. and she starts, she starts talking to me. And then she, the reason why she was talking to me is because I had my dog with me. Like usually when I'm driving at night, my dog is mm -hmm. in the passenger seat. And so anyway, we were just kind of chatting and, and she was just trying to get my, my dog's attention. And then eventually she was all like, she was like, are you Filipina? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I am actually. And I, I thought, I just want to share this experience because back then when like, because I used to be a self-loathing Filipina, but yeah. back then mm -hmm. when people would ask me that question, I'd be like, I'd always be quick to say, yeah, but I'm really Americanized. I'd say something like that. And so I, I actually said, yeah, like enthusiastically, I was like, yes, I am. You, you found one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then when the food was ready, because it was taking a while, because I guess they were mm -hmm. like, they're cooking the French fries still. But when she handed, handed the food to me, Normally, when I would talk to other Filipinos, I would talk as American as possible. I would just say like, I would just say, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But when she gave me the food, I said, thank you, Paul. And then <laughs> I just drove off. And let me yeah. tell you, like, let me tell you, I would have never like for years, I, I don't think I've ever said that to anyone in like over a decade. I'm pretty sure it's been, it's been a very long time since one, I, I was excited to run into another Filipino or Filipina. And then two, I actually took the initiative to say, thank you, Paul. <laughs> oh my and I have to say like, it has like, it's all thanks to this project. The fact that mm -hmm. I get to connect with other uh, Filipinas and hear their stories and what they're going through okay. that somehow I, I just kind of, it was, it was able to give me like the foundation I needed to just feel so proud. And when people ask me that question now, it's like, and, and I wasn't even expecting that. I mean, come on, it was like midnight guys. And I was like going through a drive-through. I was not expecting to run to a Filipina, but it, it, to me, it just comes to show like how far I have gone in my own journey as a Filipino American woman. And yeah, I, I really have to give credit to this project and everyone we've interacted with. And I, I think that's all we're trying to do as Filipino American women is just find healing through history. And if we don't have that history right now, for me, it's finding that history through all of our stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know the self, the self-loathing, you know, I had those moments too growing up, but yeah, you're right. I didn't really understand what it meant to be Filipina, Filipino American until I went to college and I took a Filipino history course. Like it was only offered once every four years before it at UCI wow. um, in Orange County. And now they don't even offer it anymore because they don't have the funding mm -hmm. for it. So again, like I cannot stress enough how important it is that ethnic studies curriculum goes through, that we continue what we're doing with these circles of women, promoting and helping to redefine who we are and what we can do. And then also just like places like the Below Sun Center where we can preserve these narratives. Again, yeah, self-loathing, like that's, the best way to avoid that or never have that happen to again to another brown girl is to better understand where we come from and who we are and how our history has made us as we are. So yeah, totally understand what you're talking about. I have a, I have one more question, but I want to check mm -hmm. in with Nani if you had any comments or questions as well. No, I think that's, that's a, that was a really beautiful story. I'm happy to hear that <laughs> from you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a, it's so a that's new how story. your narrative starts to change, right? Yes, absolutely. Like just, just that shift. Like I didn't even know that happened for me until mm -hmm. that random moment. Yeah. <laughs> Midnight going to McDonald's. Yeah. And... When you just had that instinct that was never <laughs> there before. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it was, it's crazy. Like I, I'm still, I'm still like shocked by it. Like how enthusiastic and happy I was to run into mm-hmm. another Filipina. I'm, I feel this is a moment for me, everyone, you know, like yeah. this is like, <laughs> this is a life changing moment. Like so much that even, even since I've moved here to Virginia beach, like I have yet to get involved in like the local Filipino community. I have, I mean, I hear there's a lot of them here because of the Navy, <laughs> But I haven't actively like sought them out. And then ironically, so I want to give a shout out to Crystal with the Philippine American Foundation for Charities in Washington, D.C. The funny thing is that I have never been involved with their nonprofit. I've been to D.C. like a couple of times and even so in like the recent weeks. But it's because of this podcast that Crystal was able to hear about us and had decided to feature the Filipino American Woman Project and myself as a Panay visionary uh, for this month. And so I, I want to thank her so much for that. But in addition to that, having that experience I had like 24 hours ago at McDonald's, <laughs> it now gives me the conviction and drive to really seek out what is here locally and contribute. I now like want to do it. Like it's it's not something that I feel like I'm avoiding. It's like it's part of my to-do list now to um, contribute to whatever Filipino community is out here in Virginia. So so thank you to the lady at McDonald's. If I see you again, <laughs> if I see you again close to midnight and I have a craving, I will I will thank you in person and let you know that I brought you up. I didn't even get her name, so I just I just said thank you, Paul, and that was it. So <laughs> cool. Well, Stacy, final question for you. What obviously what you're doing, and I know I mentioned this a million times already throughout the show, mm-hmm. what you're doing is admirable. And I know it takes a lot of hard work. What are your future goals or plans once you finish your PhD program? Oh my God, that's like three years from now. It's like a, <laughs> it's a six to eight year program. Oh my God. Oh man. Then, no, no, I know. And there's some graduate students who are on their 10th year. So I'm just like, oh my God, oh I got it. <laughs> I gotta do this. No, so much anxiety. (laughs) I get anxiety over emails. That's how bad and stressful these programs are. But oh yeah, no, but Jen, your guys' email, it was it was fine. But (laughs) it didn't stress me out. It made me happy. But um, my goals for after my my program, I if I get the chance to become a professor, I would love that, right? Because then I can speak to the future generations of. Filipino American students, Asian American students, just, you know, everybody in general and teach ethnic studies or women's history. That would be great. But I understand the reality of getting a tenure track job uh, as a professor is very slim, very narrow, especially as a woman of color. Mm. But I know that my heart and passion really lies within community spaces. So I would love to actually dedicate my time and efforts and my future career to continue reaching out to these communities and representing them and their histories and also teaching. Oh my goodness. I've taught K through 12 for like 10 years now. And I can't stress enough how important it is to reach out to kids, especially like underserved communities. I, I really want to be a part of that again, after my PhD, like the whole reason why I'm getting this PhD is not for the glamour of a professor job, but it's, you know, that job is very difficult and strenuous in itself, but it's really so that I can create that bridge between academia, research, and the community. Like, I want to be the ground woman, right, who helps to get their stories heard and what they need in their communities in order for things to change. I want to be part of that process, right? I don't want to be stuck in the, the ivory tower, I guess, in a way, but I want to use my career in the future to 
basically do outreach research and focusing on the youth. Like that, that's my main goal at the end of all of this. That's very admirable. I don't have another adjective than admirable, but yes, that is very, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you, Stacey and Nani are very like articulate. Like you guys have your adjectives and stuff down. So I'm just going to say admirable. Because it's like... <laughs> gonna admirable is the first adjective that pops into my head in case that helps. Thank <laughs> you guys. Not really, because, you know, growing up in Dilly City, it was just this community of different minorities and if I had known about my history, if I had the opportunity to actually be taught Asian American history or just ethnic studies in general, I think it would have made such a huge difference in my community, Daly City, right? Yeah. I, I just think, you know, other families, other immigrants, other individuals in society, they could just benefit so much from having that instilled in their mindset. And then the, their practice with interacting with people from an early age. And so I really think this is my way to give back to my community. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I feel like had I known, if I had I had a way to understand our history, I think it would have made a big difference in my relationship with my mom and how she kind yeah. of portrays the Maria Clara archetype mm-hmm. uh, very much. And and just kind of my angst with like other being a self-loathing Filipino. Mm-hmm. And I just think of all those, all the times in my twenties that I just, I felt like I was kind of going through this uphill battle or I was self-conflicted. And had I known all this stuff, I mean, really just these last couple of months of doing these interviews, just knowing that there are other women who uh, struggle in the same way and and learning more about our history and understanding that a lot of what we're told was a lie because of colonialism. Like, had I known all of that, I don't think my life would have been as difficult. <laughs> I think it would be, it, it probably, I'm not saying that I regret anything. I'm, I'm happy to come to a place where I can have a project like this to share my pain with people. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I only wonder, I look at like my white male counterparts, you know, like my husband and and our roommate and how the last thing they have to worry about is their identity. Like they know that they're white and men, like they, like that's not even a question. And they grew up with history, American history all around them. They can like my husband, like if I ask him about when was the, I don't know, something in history. Like if, if I bring up anything, he will, he will most likely know the year it happened and why it happened. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like, I, like when he, when he, sometimes when he says like, why don't you, like, I can't believe you don't know like who the first president of America is, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, I don't know what to say to you. Like, I, I, I know that we were supposed to be taught in, in school, but I was dealing with a lot of inner conflict, like mm-hmm. throughout school that it was just hard. I just felt so disconnected. And so, yeah, like, I think what you're doing is so needed in our community. And I hope together, you know, with what you're doing and what Nani and I are doing here with the project, mm-hmm. we can instill like truth to our community at a young age, or even, even if you're older to reclaim your narrative and rewrite your narrative and know that you are enough and you are worthy. And we got some, we have a lot of good work to do now moving forward. And a lot of, uh, man, what was I going to say? I was going to say like butt kicking or something. (laughs) (laughs) Ass kicking. (laughs) We have a lot of ass kicking to do. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we're coming up. We're coming up, everyone. You watch out now. (laughs) Yeah.
that's all that's what I, that's all I have to say drop drop the mic now <laughs> drop the mic <laughs> yeah well i feel like i learned a lot today stacy i feel like you have just you have like strengthened my resolve with okay. with what we're doing here and it's just great to get that historical background to really solidify what we're doing as we do this project half of the time i don't know like why i'm doing it but the more i learn the mm -hmm. more like i look back at everything that we've done so far and realize like yeah this is some good work that we're doing even if we mm -hmm. don't know exactly like what it's going to do and who it's going to affect mm -hmm. and so i just want to thank you again for being a part of the change for fellow for our philippine ex community and mm -hmm. filipino american women and with that said for anyone that is interested in learning more about you and uh, your book and the Bulosan Center, how can they do that? How can they get a hold of you? Oh, okay. Well, the Bulosan Center, we have a Facebook page. So just look us up on Facebook and you can contact us through there if you want to get to know more. We also offer internships. So it doesn't matter if you are a student at UC Davis or at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. It doesn't matter. You can have an internship with us and you can work from your space. And then also you can find my work and my publications with Pacific Atrocities Education. If you just Google that, you'll find their website. They're located in the heart of San Francisco's Chinatown. So you can find us there as well. And for me, you can just, you can Facebook message us on Blowsun Center and specifically ask like, oh, hey, Stacy, can I have some resources for blank and blank history? And I'll be sure to respond to you as, as like within, usually we respond within 72 hours, like maximum. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? I guess the main thing is just celebrate Filipino American History Month. It's so crazy how long it took for us just to be recognized to have a, a month dedicated to us. So just like do a random Google search for the rest of the month, like once a day. <laughs> no, really, to find some yes. sort of... You know, Filipino American mirror that you can look at, even if it's like a short summary on Wikipedia, because the more you connect with history, even if it seems very broad and superficial, you know, at least you learned one new thing about what helped create the identity that you're facing today. So I really recommend that type of that type of like educational exercise once a day, because we all need a break once in a while. And sometimes that break can also be a healing break. And that means we can read something positive for the day. And for this month, Filipino American History Month, just look up a positive Filipino American fact. That's good advice. And mm -hmm. if you forget to do that on a daily basis, you can just set an alarm on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, Stacy, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you once again, two years later. I can't even believe it. That's so it's, crazy. Oh yeah. I feel like we'll have to like touch base again in another, mm -hmm. we'll check in with you again in two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see what more you have learned and what resources mm -hmm. you have collected, but hopefully it'll be sooner. But of course we want to respect your, your time, <laughs> but yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And also we want to thank our listeners. If this resonated with you in any way, just check out our show notes. You can, you know how super generous I am on there. I usually provide all the resources or most of the resources that we mentioned throughout the show and how you can get a hold of Stacy and how you can get a hold of us. With that said, I want to thank you all. I want to thank you, Nani, again for co-hosting as always and Stacy for joining us. We look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Bye guys. Bye. Happy Philippine American History Month.